This is episode two of Pod Scholarship. And today we are talking to John Sullivan from Mullenberg College. We're going to discuss platforms. And in particular, is Spotify good for podcasting? It's the way we're going to frame it. John wrote The Platforms of Podcasting, Past and Present, a recent article in Social Media and Society. And we're, we're grateful to have him. So welcome, John. Thank you for coming. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. And today I am joined by my co-host, Ryan Sperry. As always, Ryan, it's good to see you again. Nice to be here. Thank you. And let's just get into it then. So first off, John, can you tell us what's a platform? Yeah, that's a great question because I got into actually something of an argument with a former professor of mine who's been writing about uh, the internet for quite a long time. And I took courses with him in the 1990s. And he talked, he wrote a lot in the 1990s about portals. And so uh, that was like kind of the key concept. And he was saying, you know, well, what's you know, that isn't, isn't a platform just a portal, like a web portal? You know, I've been writing about those for 20 years. Why is this anything new or different? But I think it is something new or different. It is something kind of unique. And platforms at their basic, uh, their basic functionality is to connect people together in one kind of virtual space online for a whole host of different kinds of activities, whether it's commerce or exchanging ideas or exchanging, you know, video, audio, whatever that is. These platforms simply exist to allow, um, you know, people to interchange whatever it is they want to online. But the, the reason why they're so prominent and they're so important, I think, is because they also enable, uh, they not only do they enable this to happen, but of course, these spaces are not neutral spaces. These spaces are a, the object of surveillance, of course, right? And so the platform, you know, the, the, you know, the buy-in is that you can use these platforms for free, but in exchange for using these very powerful platforms for free, you give up some measure of privacy by allowing the platform to know exactly what you're doing and where and when. And then, of course, the platforms then resell that information to third parties who see these platforms as very important you know, uh, avenues for them to reach potential customers who then are, are doing things online. So that's the so, you know, Facebook is free. But it's nothing's ever free online, of course, because Facebook continually repackages and resells all of your private personal data. And every platform uses the same kind of playbook, right? So wait, uh, okay, there's a few things I want to package there. Uh, the first thing is portals versus platforms. What's a what's a portal and how's it different? Yeah, so I think portals are, in my mind, portals are like a web 1.0 kind of environment where the portal is a way for you to access information on the internet, but it's not uh, intelligent in the sense that it doesn't necessarily know who you are. And it's your avenue onto the, the web and for you to find things. But it was kind of a static experience, right? So portals, uh, even something like AOL, um, and CompuServe, if you remember CompuServe, these are, yeah. you know, these are some, uh, some, you know, time-worn uh, early services that people use to get on the internet. And it's true that AOL's portal, if you use some of AOL's apps, they, they knew what you were doing. But as soon as you clicked on that little globe icon that represented the internet, suddenly you were free of AOL's surveillance and you were out on the web doing whatever it is you wanted to do. And when you logged into one of the web crawlers that allowed you to kind of find things on the internet, you were by and large anonymous. That was the kind of, that was the value proposition of the internet that you could, you know, anyone like the dog could be on the internet um, right. uh, on bulletin boards. But platforms require you to not be anonymous. So uh, platforms, the, the entry fee is for you to create an account. And those accounts are policed. And Facebook in particular has been very vocal about trying to clamp down on people creating false or fake profiles, or even if you change your profile or, you know, they don't, they don't want you to have more than one profile because they want to be able to have this one-to-one -one match between who you are. So you, the platforms, basically, you lose that anonymity that you had in the early days of the web. Uh, you're able to do a lot more. Uh, without having to have uh, programming know-how, no HTML or any of these kinds of programming languages. So it enables you to do 
a lot on the web that we couldn't do in the 1990s. There was a barrier to entry, if you will, because people needed programming know-how in order to be able to access and create content on, on the web. And now that's not uh, a necessity, but there's a trade-off. I have a question though. So, so for you, I'm gathering from you, the key difference is the data economy side that's appended to content creation. What about like, like what was GeoCities in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I think that that was that was more like a kind of bulletin board, like I'm kind of modeling the old bulletin board idea where everybody could post things and you could create an account, but there was no policing of those accounts. So you could, you know, you could call yourself whoever you wanted, right? And and log into it's I think Reddit kind of works the same way. Reddit doesn't necessarily police your profile or anything like that. It's it's more of a, this kind of open forum for discussion and exchange of ideas. So um, I, I, so I would, under the definition, I would hesitate then to call Reddit a kind of platform in the same way that we're talking about these other platforms. Yeah, I mean, this is really interesting kind of uh, split here or shift. Would you say that part of this shift from a portal to a platform, uh, what, what I'm hearing is that a lot of it was driven by the changes and control over data and maybe monetization too, right? The early portals were driven by giving you ads, like flashing up ads. Once they had you, they just showed ads to everybody, the same ads, and it wasn't really tailored to anyone. As the the data manipulation and the data science got more developed here, they realized, hey, we need to have some knowledge of who's behind that screen there so we can really serve up ads and advertising to them or or use their data to sell it to someone else or something like that. Is that the main driving impetus here, you think, for that change from portals to platforms, perhaps? I, I think that's one of the main drivers, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. And I lay most of that at the feet of Google, really, because Google revolutionized the art of selling advertising online by coming up with the the notion that it's what people are searching for that becomes the the driver for the ad message rather than simply going to a portal itself and providing you with a very basic banner ad that may or may not relate to anything you're you're looking at. Mm-hmm. So it was Google's advertising model is really predicated on the notion of knowing what it is you're actually looking for and to try and give that to you. So it's much more interactive with the user rather than a kind of web 1.0 banner advertisement, something like that. So that I think that model begins to... And it began, it's a system that feeds on itself, right? So the more Google started becoming more and more profitable, the more it knew about you as a consumer, the more it could not only provide you with that information, but also then turn that into even more specific profit uh, that it could make with advertisers on the other side. So that I think that became the kind of model that a lot of social media really copied and used to their great benefit. And so platforms like Twitter and Facebook and all the social media platforms really took that model and ran with it. I'm, try, I'm trying to process this, and I think, I think I have a grasp of the concept. Would you, would you characterize platforms as sort of technologies that facilitate the development of like media, micromedia enterprises? So it allows you to establish a brand and create a flow of content associated with that brand and a spot on the internet where people can go and get that brand. So as opposed to Reddit or GeoCities where, or the comment section of a newspaper where people can converge to a third-party site to discuss among themselves, you're saying that these Web 2.0 platforms, they allow users to become an outlet in a way by t- by offloading some of the technical work that's involved in creating and distributing content to make it easy for someone to become a, a sort of a, a branded outlet of their own. Right. It takes away those bit those that yeah that barrier to uh, to producing web content yourself. And right. you could even go back to that was one of the, that was the value position proposition of something like Blogger, right? When it first emerged, because it allowed anyone to have a blog without being able to program in HTML or anything like that. And so it became this this great site for people to, you know, this kind of flourishing of people having their own blogs and and things like that. 
that's what platforms do. And that's why they're increasingly going to become the future of the web because people are going to be inter and people are already beginning to interact with the internet via these platforms. So yes, they are internet enabled, but they are their own kind of um, walled gardens, right? So you step into one of these walled gardens and they have amazing features and things like that. But at the end of the day, you know, you've got people looking over the walls of the garden, watching your every move, and you can't get out of the, you can't change the garden, right? You can't make fundamental changes yourself to the structure of the garden because right. other people are making those structures for you. So as much as you would want to keep your Facebook information private, honestly, your Facebook information, the degree to which you can keep that private is, of course, up to Facebook. And they can make that easy. They can make it difficult. They can, you know, they can make those changes to your environment. And those changes can happen instantaneously without your knowledge or without your consent. Right. But, you know, by just by gaining access to these walled gardens, you are giving your de facto consent to have these environments basically controlled for you. Right. You know, I'm thinking the blogger is a great one because I remember blogger when it came out, I was into web programming back in the day and it was sort of, it represented a step up from Microsoft. Was it front page? You remember the Microsoft package? Yeah. And to, I remember the big difference between blogger and front page. They were both easy to use and they offloaded technical demands. But what Blogger allowed you to do was it allowed you to create new web pages seamlessly that were only based on the content of the page. You didn't have to create a new page for every item that you wanted to produce. And so what it did was it allowed you to completely automate the platforming, the deployment of your content. It really took the entire thing out. My sense of the concept of Web 2.0 is that has a big part to do with it. The capacity to steadily stream a regular flow of content, it makes it much more seamless. The thing with the, you know, the panopticon aspect of, of platforms is I kind of feel like WordPress is also a platform and that it doesn't do those things. But maybe that doesn't, I mean, these are semantic definitions, right? We're dealing with like abstract categories that, uh, you know, describe real world, you know, entities to varying degrees of accuracy. But what about what about WordPress? How does that fit into that framework? Well, I would say that WordPress.com, their self-hosted site w is a platform uh, and they do sell advertising against that. And they make that very clear when you sign up for a WordPress.com account. Uh, but they, you know, WordPress is free open source software. So you can download that from their site and you can install it on your own server and then you don't, that's, that's completely decentralized, right? It's not, then you're not part of the platform economy because you're not using WordPress's self-hosted platform. Right. To the end user, it looks exactly the same, right? But right. it's a big difference. I would say, yeah, I mean, what you guys are getting to also, it's like another shift here that happened from 1.0 to 2.0, which was offloading a lot of the labor on the user, Right. And platforms kind of do this. They, they go from the portal, which is just, we have all the content, come here to see our shiny content, to hold it. It's a lot easier if you create the content, and then we have you here in this walled garden, so to speak, too. So I think that that's part of a shift that's happening across the internet and, and, and websites like that, too, right? It's very economical. It's kind of a drive to, to lower labor costs. You don't have to come up with stuff. I mean, I worked on some with some firms in the early days of the internet too, and they were doing online communities. and And part of what that company had to do is they always had to create content continuously, polls, things to get teenagers interested in coming there. And then eventually they said, "Why don't we just let the teenagers build this site?" And they started uploading things and putting it there. And you know what happened? They fired half the workforce when that happened. Right. But it also made the, the site much more popular too, right? Instead of uh, older employees coming up with content for teenagers, the teenagers did it themselves. So that might have been the moment when that company was shifting from a portal to mm -hmm. a platform mm -hmm. in some sense too. Yeah, I, draw, I, draw, I, will, I will say I draw a lot of my uh, inspiration from Nick Cernicek's book, Platform Capitalism, which I, I want to put a plug out for that book because it's a small book, but it is very well reasoned and it's really a nice overview of how this works 
You know, I like this distinction between WordPress.com and WordPress.org, let's say, like the software and the platform, because you, you make a very good point. Even if you use a WordPress, the WordPress software, uh, WordPress won't direct users to your content, for example. It will not index your content. And maybe this is a good pivot towards the question, what do platforms do? What function do they fulfill in the culture world, cult, the field of cultural production, culture markets? That's a great question. And I have a colleague who's, you know, working with some other colleagues on a whole book on that question about platforms and and cultural production. But they, they really have, I think, have become the new kind of template for uh, forms of cultural production. And, and, and a lot of it is kind of like reselling culture back to us as, yeah, as users and consumers, right? Because the, the theory is, you know, going back to Ryan, your comment, you know, why, why create, you know, things that may or may not work in the marketplace? Just take that information from users and consumers and then repackage it and market it back to them as something new and novel. And that becomes a kind of uh, a, a way to recycle and repackage culture. You're always on the cutting edge because you assume that your users and consumers are always on the cutting edge. So therefore, you are as well. Um, that that's kind of a model. And we, we've seen that a lot through, you know, other types of culture that kind of come up through platforms and then sort of get repackaged as movies or TV series or whatever, and then get sold back to, to us as consumers. Uh, I see that happening a lot as well. Um, so I think, you know, the platforms are here to stay and they're, they raise so many fundamental issues for us as a society that, you know, it's kind of spawned a whole, new genre of research in sociology, media studies, and all over the place, cultural studies, all about well, what, what are these platforms doing? How are they doing it? What are their impacts on us? The impacts, I mean, there are some positive impacts for sure, because they enable certain types of cultural exchange that were difficult, if not impossible before. And that kind of information and cultural exchange has had some really big benefits um, as well. But, you know, think, you know, these platforms can be as easily as divisive as they are inclusive, as we've seen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's no question about that. So there is there's a lot of things that it does, though, right? Like a platform sort of has few types of services in its value proposition, like it gets audience members and has the power to direct audiences to content creation enterprises. I guess some platforms orchestrate monetization opportunities? Like what else do they do? What other roles do they play in the uh, supply chain of production? Yeah, I would say I, I want to harken back on one thing you said earlier, Joe, and that's really trying to find and discover new content. So I would say discovery is a key element of what these platforms bring to us. And you take something like Spotify, right? And um, I've talked with uh, a number of people who work in the music industry uh, a former student of mine is now at uh, Universal Music, and he's an executive of Universal Music. And so they're constantly trying to get airplay, uh, not just on the radio, but in, importantly on these streaming services like Spotify. So Spotify is a major customer for them. They want to make sure that their artists are getting played on Spotify. And what he told me was that, you know, on Spotify and many of these music streaming services like Apple Music and Amazon Music, you name it, you have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of artists and albums at your beck and call. You could, you know, you could really curate your own um, universe of music. But he said the vast majority of users don't spend time doing that at all. The vast majority of users say, play music for me, go. And the algorithm, the app, the platform provides you with music. Right. And, you know, you can skip through, but the vast majority of listeners just say, I, I want to hear this genre go and have the app and the algorithm curate their own music choices. So that's a very powerful kind of uh, function, right? Because now you've got an app or an algorithm that's feeding you music and you're getting exposed to certain types of music. Well, that algorithm is there for a reason and it's been programmed in a particular type of way because it's programmed to give you more of the artists from record labels that have existing financial relationships with Spotify to make sure that those songs and albums 
get high rotation. It's very much a pay-to-play situation, something that the federal government spent time in the 50s and 60s prosecuting radio stations for called Payola, right? But Payola is the name of the game for music apps like Spotify. And platforms are integral in now in our content and cultural discovery, something that our traditional media through our, you know, these gatekeeping channels, whether it was the three major networks before we had a universe of 500 cable channels, right? Or, you know, all these kinds of avenues for directing our attention to various specific elements of culture. Uh, Platforms are becoming very sophisticated at providing this for us under the guise of giving us what we want, right? Right. Um, That's the real web 2.0 difference is that, you know, tell us what you're interested in and we'll give you the stuff that you want to find, right? And that's true Mm -hmm. to an extent, but there's also a kind of underlying, we're going to give you some of the things that we think you want that we have been paid by an outside provider to also provide you access to. So that content discovery is a key aspect, I would say, of platforms today. That's, I think that's a really fascinating area of research that needs to be explored more, this whole idea of the algorithms and what they're providing us, because you put it really well. I mean, there's there's an advantage to consumers too, right? That we're getting... We have a place, you know, look, try to saying, hey, I want to listen to a podcast and just searching Google for a podcast, a good podcast, right? It's going to be overwhelming. But if I go to Spotify, it'll narrow it down. On the other hand, I think there needs to be a little more transparency about these algorithms and what they think is good for me. Because, you know, I always wonder about, say, Netflix, for example, like their their top 10 trending Netflix shows, half of them are made by Netflix, right? And they're and I know that they're not going to admit it or not, but uh, there has to be some priority in the algorithm to Netflix-generated shows. Even if it thinks I like reality shows, they're going to stream the Netflix ones a little bit higher on that list for me, perhaps. So while I think it's good for the consumer, too, that and I, sometimes I go to Netflix and I just spend too much time going through them all, not deciding on anything actually to watch because there's too much content. Really, what's the power here? Is there a, there's a power dimension here of these platforms that they can really steer us towards certain things too, and it, it's I guess it's a good and a bad side for the consumer itself. Yeah, I mean you you don't have to look very far to see some of the negative sides of this. So um, one of the great examples of this was uh, this scholar at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, Zainab Tufechi, who writes a lot for the New York Times, and she was doing some research on Trump rallies. And she started noticing as she was accessing YouTube, whenever she would click to watch a Trump rally as part of her research, of course, on the side of YouTube, they have suggested videos. And all the suggested videos were getting more and the more she sort of looked at those suggested videos, the more they were for uh, extreme right wing content. So if she did a little experiment where she started out with a Trump campaign video and just clicked on the top recommended video, the next recommended video, and did the same, and did the same, and did the same. And eventually, I mean, it wasn't wasn't too many clicks on those before she was seeing some very uh, uh, white supremacist content. In other words, the algorithm, based on what other people were watching, people who watched Trump videos tended to watch white supremacy videos, Call me crazy. I have no idea why, but that was the that was the the mode. That was the algorithm. It was aggregating all of the views and then offering her what she should see next. And so she wrote a whole piece in the New York Times about how YouTube is is radicalizing people who who there who were there to watch, let's say, a major political candidate from the United States and a rally and to, and a speech can quickly elide from that to very much radical content. Uh, online. And so it becomes a kind of that algorithms can radical, radicalize us in various ways. So that was her argument. I thought it was pretty compelling. You know, though, I so as part of this project, we run podcasts as field experiments. And it's a tough line to walk because consumers will leave your outlet when you do not deliver them what they want. It's not like the power of platforms is absolute. If they cram undesirable stuff that consumers do not desire. Consumers will go elsewhere because it's not really a monopoly. It's just a, a very powerful market actor. On the other hand, it's getting to white nationalist rallies because that's what the Trump viewers want. 
on some level. Like you are not seeing it is not something that YouTube is engineering. YouTube is is reflecting in some way, you know, the preferences of people who are out there, or at least that'd be the argument. How do you respond to that? Where people are like, listen, Nazis are what the people want, or at least the people watching Trump rallies, they want the white supremacy. That's what they like. Right. And so I think there's there's if you allow the the search algorithm algorithms to be entirely determined by a computer program and there's no kind of content moderation in a way. So that's another big uh, aspect of uh, the study of platforms now is there there have been several really key books that have come out in the last year that have looked at some of the failed attempts at platforms to police their own content. Can you give us some recommendations? Yeah, so um, one of them is called Behind the Screen. That's a really good one. And there's another one by Tarleton Gillespie that uh, came out, and I'm blanking on the name of it, but I can send that to you. But those are two good books about content moderation and some of the attempts, uh, failed attempts, at trying to moderate content online to try and rein in some of the excesses of what can happen through these online platforms. But it's really, really challenging, right? It's challenging to do that. Um, in, in traditional media, they, they act as gatekeepers. They have, um, and this is what kind of I'm harkening back to as well, it's kind of sociological concept of professionalization. They have professional standards. They have uh, professional organizations that socialize their members into making decisions that are not only let's say, in good taste, but are also in comport with the law, those kinds of things. And since that professional class comes up with those uh, rules and guidelines, it's kind of a self-policing system. Now, of course, it's not, uh, nothing is a perfect system, and that's not a system that necessarily lets a lot of um, alternative thoughts and viewpoints through. And that was, that's been one of the consistent challenges, let's say, of activist groups is trying to get access to mainstream media because they're oftentimes their views and their concerns do not fit within the larger definition of what is quote unquote newsworthy. So you can even go back to Todd Gitlin's uh, book about some of the failures, which was one of my favorite books. And we like to teach that book. Uh, one of the, uh, the whole world is watching about some of the failures of the radical left to gain access to the mainstream media. And that book still has purchase today because um, it kind of is a, is, a, is a look back at some of the, the roles of these gatekeepers. And the, the theory always was that, hey, once you've got the internet and everyone can have their own, their own say, um, you will have done an end run around that whole system which is not necessarily true. We've simply exchanged human flesh and blood gatekeepers with virtual ones and AI gatekeepers. And I'm not sure which, which ones are, are better, honestly. They still got to be, rules still have to be established, even when it's artificial moderation. You know what the paradigmatic example for me, I mean, it's a bit of an unfair one, but it's an entertaining one about what happens when in a content moderation free type of environment is remember when microsoft deployed that ai on twitter to learn from conversations on twitter and eventually they had to shut it down because the the ai had become like completely nazi and hateful (laughs) (laughs) i'll look it up i'll put it in the show notes So can you give us some concrete examples of platforms just so we can anchor our ideas about platforms to to concrete things that everybody would recognize? Uh, Sure. I mean, uh, just to piggyback on what you just said, I mean, Anchor is a platform. So we're talking about podcasting and and Anchor is uh, is one of those platforms and it models itself on YouTube, which is probably one of the is YouTube is the number one uh, largest uh, video sharing platform in the world. Certainly there are others. Mm-hmm. But uh, but but you know YouTube is number one, and then of course the social media platforms like Facebook, and um, you know you name it Instagram, Twitter. These are all um, services that connect users together, allow them to self-express, but and also allow them to exchange information with one another, to discover information about other other people, and to upload photos and, and video and all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. Can you explain to to people who might not follow platforms so closely, why are they important? Like, who cares? Why should we be concerned about 
what's happening with platforms and how our communications platforms are evolving. Well, I mean, you need look no further than, you know, the 2016 presidential election and Facebook to understand that platforms be, have are increasingly becoming the number one sources of information, not just about, you know, how your friend's cat is doing, but on what's happening in national and local politics. I mean, that's the frightening thing when I, you know, do a show of hands with my students in the classroom and ask them how many of them are reading a daily newspaper or even logging on to uh, a website like newyorktimes.com or something like that. Um, <laughs> and very few hands go up. And I say, how many of you read news that you get uh, through links on Facebook? And almost every hand goes up. So it's become a kind of go-to spot for the dissemination of important information that's important to us as citizens. So as such, because people are using it so much to, I mean, we have limited amount of time during our day, right? So if you're spending time on social media, you try and double, triple task and try and, you know, get some news headlines while you're also catching up on your friends and family members. But that's increasingly fraught, as we know, because um, it becomes ripe for manipulation. And that's exactly what happened in 2016. And it's happening now um, with the 2020 presidential election. You know, there are psyops going on right now within on the Facebook platform that Facebook is only, I think, half-heartedly trying to manage and control. There are fake accounts that are being created. There are There's just all kinds of misinformation, some of it coming from major political leaders, all right. But a lot of it coming from accounts that look like they are actual real people and voters having real substantive discussions. But instead, they are troll accounts that are being managed by a foreign power like Russia because they're becoming the go to sites for our access to important information right. platforms. We can't ignore them anymore. We have to pay attention, not just to the kinds of information that they provide and how they provide it, but the kind of mechanisms that they are employing or whether they're employing mechanisms to actually police some of this content to, to, or at least to identify for its users, what type of content is suspect or a misinformation or potential misinformation. Twitter, after dragging its feet for quite a long time, has only recently begun tagging some of the tweets by the president and others as uh, false debunk or misleading information, right? But that's just, that's the most basic level of, of, of corporate responsibility that's required here. Uh, they can go much further. It's like, don't inject bleach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, like that that that's potentially going to harm you. Just FYI. <laughs> well, I was going to say, uh, who? What is the role of these media platforms? I mean, is it a slippery slope, perhaps, to have them in charge of controlling what's on the site or censoring or things like that? I mean, in cases of drinking bleach, I think it's perfectly acceptable. But you know, to to say, well, maybe this person's too far right or this person's too far left. Is there maybe a role for the government to be involved, even though when I think of that, I, I think it's a uh, you know, tall task when I see uh, senators talking to Zuckerberg in conferences, they have no idea even what platform he's on. But is this a role that maybe government should have instead of these? Are we asking too much of these sites, I guess, and these, these platforms to navigate and to censor themselves and control that information? I don't think it's too much to ask them to come up with ways to try and help users navigate information because the problem on platforms is that all, I mean, the, the great value proposition of platforms is that my message and your message and Joe's message and everyone's message get equal billing. So even if, you know, Donald Trump is tweeting, I can you know reply to his tweet and I'm replying directly to the president of the United States. And that's a very powerful prospect, right? That's a very powerful thing. And then that was the whole, you know, brouhaha about whether or not a Donald Trump can block people on Twitter, right? So that was a kind of a fascinating aspect of this. But uh, what I'm getting at here is that, so on the one hand, you can, anyone can you know, post a message and reply to a message and get sort of equal billing. But there are models that don't involve government influence where some kind of moderation can take place. Now, 
what what's been happening on these platforms is they've been hiring people and paying them very low wages to kind of go through and just monitor some of the internet's worst posts and and really just trying to find instances of child pornography and um, sadism and all kinds of really really nasty stuff online and that is traumatizing for those individuals uh, as well and that's what some of these books are getting at that i mentioned earlier you mean the moderators, it's traumatizing. The people have to moderate, yeah. The, the moderators, it's traumatizing, absolutely. There, there, I mean, if you look at the the press, there are model, models like a like press councils or a public editor or something like that. And I, I think platforms would do well to have groups of citizens or, or something like a press council basically operate as a kind of guiding hand to the organization and have final say on certain types of content decisions. I think it would be honestly within, it would be in their best interest to do that as well, because then that would distance them from a lot of the content decisions that they don't want to make because it might impact their bottom line. So I think there are some models out there that we could maybe explore that might work for these platforms. So let's pivot to podcasting now in particular. And I wanted to tackle it through the prism of Spotify. Uh, you know, it's gotten a lot of attention after Bill Simmons and uh, Joe Rogan deals. A lot of people are concerned that Spotify is seeking to fundamentally change podcasting. Could you start us off by explaining how podcasting traditionally has been a, a different kind of platform than maybe YouTube or Facebook? and how the Spotify deal threatens to change the traditional organization of the podcasting platforms. Sure, absolutely, no problem. I mean, uh, podcasting is really built on the uh, really open standard called RSS, uh, which stands for Really Simple Syndication. And RSS has been around since the earliest days of the web, really. Um, It started out as a way for people to connect to blogs, Right, so you could keep you could basically subscribe to your favorite blog and not have to keep hitting the website again when new content was posted, and it, you would be able to use a kind of uh, feed reader to and new content would just appear in there, and it would become a kind of digital magazine or newspaper that would continually change and continually be updated with new content. And so that was, I mean, I was always a big user of RSS for uh, following uh, websites and blogs. It was a terrific tool. Well, it was up to a programmer by the name of Dave Weiner and a former MTV VJ turned internet entrepreneur named Adam Curry, who has his own uh, podcast, to figure out uh, Adam Curry was a big Apple enthusiast. And when iPods came out in the early 2000s, he thought, well, this is great. I wonder if I can find a way to have audio, digital audio content downloaded automatically onto my iPad, uh, my iPod, so I could listen to it. So along with Dave Weiner, they kind of altered the RSS standard to include what's called enclosure. So it allowed them to include MP3 files. So you could deliver the MP3 file into a podcatcher. And Adam Curry wrote the podcatcher software called iPodder. And suddenly you could, just like you could subscribe to blogs, you could just subscribe to audio content and podcasts. And once that got integrated into iTunes in uh, 2005, that really opened the floodgates to podcasting. So now we have like these big uh, players like Spotify, Amazon Music just announced yesterday that it's going to get into podcasting as well. It's going to have podcasting available on an Amazon Music platform. Now they're all getting interested in uh, podcasting because it's hopefully going to drive users to their platforms. And that's the sole purpose of goal of platforms is to maximize user size. Because the more users that are on their platform, the more that they are able to monetize what those users are doing, right? So platforms operate on a winner-take-all kind of principle. Uh, The larger your platform is, the more you're able to get bigger and bigger and bigger. The smaller it is, there's a threshold beyond which you won't survive. And um, Google found that when Google Plus eventually folded, right? Google Plus was supposed to be the competitor to Facebook, but they weren't able to attract enough users off of the existing platform of Facebook because the larger the, you know, there's a, it's called network, network externalities, right? The larger the network is, the more useful it is. 
So there wasn't too much utility in Google Plus because it was simply too small and therefore it kind of died an ignominious death when Google cut it off several years ago. But um, so Spotify wants to be this platform of choice, not just for music, and it is the largest music, the global music provider, but it wants to be that for podcasts as well. The difference is how Spotify is delivering that audio content to you, the end user. So podcasting operates on the principle that if you have a podcatcher, podcatcher software, and you know the uh, URL feed, the RSS feed URL, you can plug that in and then the content will start downloading automatically. Well, Spotify has got all these feeds within their uh, servers and they have massive server farms and they're able to provide you the audio so you're able to stream it rather than download it. So that was RSS was great um, in the early days of the Internet because broadband was not well uh, distributed throughout the population. And it could take anywhere from an hour to two hours to download a single episode of a podcast. It was very slow. So you had your computer do that overnight. And then you'd you know, sync up your audio device the next day or you'd have everything downloaded the next day and you could take it with you. So it was built for an internet that was considerably slower than the internet that we have today. Uh, but Spotify and other platforms like YouTube operate on a principle of uh, internet ubiquity. As soon as you hit that play on YouTube or Spotify, it plays instantly because you're streaming that at the moment that you're asking for it. So it's on-demand media. So you're moving from this kind of downloaded media to on-demand media. And that's the that's the real big change. Now, there's some discussion going on behind the scenes, and I'm not sure to the extent to which uh, Spotify is doing what's called pass-through, where Spotify is simply connecting a user to an MP3 file that's existing on a server, or whether or not Spotify is actually caching that MP3 file themselves and then allowing that to be streamed to their to their users. But it, it, it's a different way, if it's a different way of accessing the audio file. To the end user, it seems like it's exactly the same, but it's a fundamentally different way of accessing the audio file. Let me see if I can I can clarify my understanding. You can tell me if I'm right. So the difference perhaps between Spotify and YouTube is that when a podcaster puts a program out to the world, they are putting it out usually through their own web hosting arrangement. It's like the podcaster finances the deployment of the audio file to the internet. And that audio file is available to anybody who wishes to access that hosting site through the RSS feed. You can do it on whatever podcatcher you want. You could do it on Feedly. You could do it in a Netflix browser, whatever. And what Spotify is trying to do is they have, like YouTube, proprietary servers that if you want their programming, you have to access their servers, presumably through their programs or their apps or whatever. And the way that they're trying to drive people towards their proprietary servers is by having exclusives like Michelle Obama's podcast or Joe Rogan or whatever. If you want to listen to Michelle Obama... You have to do it through the Spotify app. And I guess that the idea is, is that eventually Spotify attracts all of these fans through the exclusives and it can still offer the the traditional podcast because anybody can offer them. And they're trying to basically hoard an audience by offering popular exclusive products and, and trying to capture the market to maybe establish a YouTube situation where you basically have to give the video to YouTube and work through YouTube to get streaming video audiences because the alternatives, there, there aren't as many great alternatives. Am I grasping that properly? Yeah, and I think one, one difference between that metaphor of YouTube and Spotify is that there are really no, I would say there's really no functional alternatives to YouTube, right? In terms of access and in, even on... Yes, there's Vimeo, there's other types of uh, video sharing websites, but YouTube has been very clear that its own search algorithm will always privilege YouTube content. So even if your Vimeo video is out there, right, it may be on page 10 of a web search and no one will ever, it's functionally, you know, uh, invisible, right? 
Right. So there are few, there, there are really no functional alternatives to YouTube. Whereas with podcasting, there are lots of alternatives. And because RSS is still out there and because it's still an open web standard that anyone can use for free, it allows you to basically exist outside of the platforms, which is very challenging if you're a video distributor to exist without YouTube. That makes it very, very difficult. So when Google changed its algorithm and its its uh, scheme for how it was going to share advertising revenue with its uh, video providers, it caused a huge hue and cry. And it was earth shattering to many people who make their living on YouTube by sharing videos and, and doing ad sharing with Google, uh, because that directly cut into the bottom line. And there was very few, if any, alternatives for them to turn to. There was no other platform that had the same kind of reach that YouTube does. For them to turn to. So they couldn't just take their marbles or their videos and go home and try into another service because there was no other service, right? It was like the telephone monopoly of old, right? Where, you know, if you didn't want to play ball, play ball with um, Bell Telephone, there was really no other, mm. there was no other functional alternative, right? You, could, you couldn't go to satellite or mobile phone service because there was no competition there. But with podcasting, you have that alternative. So for example, um, let's take, and I talk about this in my piece, let's take the case of Alex Jones, right? This far right-wing commentator and a lot of his, who has a lot of incendiary content and he, he was under uh, Apple and other big platform providers were under a great deal of pressure to pull his content for a lot of incendiary comments that he made, particularly around gun control and he called, you know, uh, what was happening in Connecticut with crisis actors and all those kinds of things. So they pulled his content. But because he was podcasting, he was never that far from his audiences because on his website, he simply republished his, his feed, which was self-hosted. And then as long as you had a podcatcher, you could just put the feed into your podcatcher and boom, you started downloading new content from him again. So that Alex Jones situation demonstrated that Podcasting is different than other platforms because it has mm -hmm. this open uh, standard, this RSS standard behind it. And that's not going to go away. So on the, on the one hand, as far as podcasting is concerned, that's a big leg up from other types of platforms. But and here's the big but to this. What Spotify is doing is exactly what you're, what you're describing, Joe. It's going through and making sure that it gets exclusive content to bring more users to its platform. And what it's also doing is because Spotify is a platform, and remember, platforms, you're not anonymous to platforms. Right? Platforms know exactly who you are. And if you're a paying subscriber to Spotify, it also has your credit card information, your credit card data, so on and so forth. So whenever you access a podcast or subscribe to a podcast, whether it's Michelle Obama, Joe Rogan, and whoever else on Spotify's platform, Spotify knows not just that there's another subscriber to that podcast, but it knows exactly who that subscriber is. It has demographic information about that user. It knows who you are, and it knows how much of that podcast you're listening to, what episodes you listened the whole way through, what episodes you didn't. And it's able to use that information and monetize that information so that advertisers looking to monetize podcasts, for example, will have a lot more options on a platform like Spotify than they would just by going out and looking at some raw download numbers from other types of podcatcher apps. And on top of that, because podcasting is so fragmented, there's so many different podcatchers out there, so many different apps that you can use to download a podcast from. Spotify makes it all incredibly easy by, of course, having a one-stop shop where you can get access to all kinds of data. And the more Spotify emerges as this one-stop shop for podcasting, the more it's going to start to veer towards that winner-take-all aspect of platforms. And that's going to be much more powerful as a draw. So will RSS go away? RSS will never go away. But what I see happening is a kind of two-tier system where RSS will basically be like the system that amateurs and people like you and me use to distribute podcasts, which will always be there. And that's just great. Hmm. But uh, if you're interested in turning podcasting into a career or a way to monetize, if you're looking to do it on an advertiser type basis, you're going to need to wrangle with the plat the big platform players. 
And and then that's going to lead to the same kind of dynamic that we saw with YouTube, for example, and Google. I guess I have two questions here about this whole process. Is this part of a process where we're going from an oligopoly of a few different firms controlling a few different platforms to a monopoly eventually, right? Is it all just being consolidated more and more? Or is there something really different about this RSS technology that will always keep it, you know, give people options and things like that? Because the the Alex Jones example is interesting, right? He kind of could say, well, you've kicked me out, but I can go somewhere else. But really, is he a special case maybe of really radicalized kind of viewers that will follow him anywhere? And will the you know, if there were a lot of sociology podcasts per se, right, you know, would someone say, well, the annex is gone, but I'll go to some other because there's that whatever else is on Spotify, I'll hit up. Right. And I think I take that approach actually with a lot of different content. If I, if my favorite news one was gone from Spotify, I'd probably find a bunch of other news podcasts. Right. So I guess my question is, is, is the RSS technology fundamentally different that'll prevent that from this consolidation from happening? Or is just this part of the process where we'll end up with one monopoly, Spotify someday, just like we did with YouTube or Apple with uh, apps? You know, Apple with their apps is kind of a similar situation, too. They have so much control over who can be there and who can't. Yeah, I think those players like Apple and Spotify, the, the key that they provide to loop back to what we were talking earlier is that they provide avenues for content discovery. Eventually, if you're not on one of those platforms, if you've got a if you've got a podcast and you want people to talk about it, you want people to gain access to it, and you're not on one of those major platforms, you become functionally invisible, right? No one will be able to find you because they are looking to those platforms to be the repository, the directory, if you will. Uh, I hesitate to use the word portal because that's not what we're talking about here, but it's your it's your gateway to the content, right? And unless you're able to be found on those gateways, then it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, for people to find you unless they have some other way of of finding you or just or discovering you. So it's never going to be a question. I don't think it's ever going to be a question of you won't be able to have your content out on the Web for people to find. Right. Uh, There's always that potential. But what are the what's the likelihood that people are going to find your content? if you're not accessible through one of these platforms. It's going to be highly unlikely. The reverse, however, is also true as well. If you hit the Apple podcast New and Noteworthy, for example, just like the New York Times bestseller list, right? So there was that recent case where Donald Trump Jr.'s book, the Republican operatives bought up a lot of those books in advance of it being released just so that it would make the bestseller list just so then it would actually its sales would actually be higher than they otherwise would be. So the access, you know, the new and noteworthy, the whenever you get featured on one of these platforms, it acts as like a major accelerator to your audience size. So it's the double-edged sword of platforms. You know, they can really help you become discovered, right? Uh, so that people can know you're out there. But at the same time, they can be tools to completely make you functionally invisible. Right. Although, you know, I I wonder, I mean, for sure, like pay-to-play system will disadvantage maybe that medium-sized enterprise that could have rolled out more easily. But for the very small producers, do you think it even makes a difference? I mean, basically, very small producers have to build their audiences up organically anyways, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I, I, I don't see this as as a huge concern, at least initially a huge concern for a lot of the smaller independent podcasters who actually a lot of them are, are if they are monetizing, they're selling T-shirts, they're selling mugs. You know, they are yeah. there's lots of other ways for you to or they're doing Patreon where people can pay a little bit per month into a tip jar to um, offset the cost of microphones and web hosting and all that kind of stuff. So there, those small players, I don't think are going to see this as a big issue or a problem, at least right now. The the big moves are that where this is really shaking up is uh, on the the very top end, the most profitable podcasts, the Joe Rogans and you know Bill Simmons and people like that who are who see this as uh, the next frontier of a, of a media business, and it's attracting the interest of radio as well. So big radio companies. 
radio used to ignore podcasting as a kind of stepchild that really did, you know, it was the audiences were so small that it didn't really feel like it had to pay attention. And the audiences are still comparative, comparatively speaking, hmm. compared to FM radio and even AM radio, you know, podcasting has a you know, blip on the radar. But um, I think they recognize that as more and more users are trending towards on-demand content, that radio may not fit that bill as much as it did in the past. And so companies like iHeartRadio, uh, which has just made mm-hmm. some big purchases in the podcasting world, and SiriusXM, the satellite uh, provider, has also made some big purchases uh, recently in the podcasting world. So they are they want to be at the table, particularly to attract some of this exclusive content. So, and that's that the whole nature of exclusive content also flies in the face of the history of this medium, right? Because part of the open standard RSS is that it's open for everybody, right? You can make it available to everyone. And as soon as you have content that puts a paywall in front of it, you say, okay, if you want this content, you're going to have to pay money for this. Then suddenly that changes the nature of the medium. And some have even said, is that really even a podcast anymore? Then it's just simply online media or streaming media uh, because it's no longer freely distributed through RSS. It's not really a a podcast anymore. It's a form of digital audio that you can subscribe to, but I've got some colleagues in the podcasting world that uh, I, I think that's true, but a lot, I have got some radio colleagues who vehemently disagree with me on that point. It's interesting because, you know, I I feel very conflicted about the potential of Spotify turning into YouTube for a few reasons. It's like one is I if you focus, we focus on the small enterprises and boy, like one thing that we're finding in our interviews with podcasters is that monetization is extremely difficult, whereas YouTube does not a bad job of finding ways to match advertisements to maybe smaller though large by standard you know by standard but like uh somebody with ten thousand downloads per episode they still have seem to have to go fishing for advertisers and usually they can snag one or two but it's very hard it takes sales to get a a flow of advertising and i see youtube as, as facilitating that although they seem to take a very handsome cut for that service. And I guess that's part of the issue. Although we're also finding that a lot of podcasters, they're not that interested in making money. Like they'd like to make money, but it's not really the point of their podcasting. And YouTube makes it very easy to deploy video to the web. I mean, they have a, their subtitles are fantastic. There's a lot of functionality in, in YouTube studio that would preclude you from having to pay for Adobe or something like that. So I feel very conflicted about the possibility that channel concentration in the at this point in sort of the supply chain uh, would be to the detriment of podcasting as a medium. Uh, I feel very conflicted. Yeah, I think the jury is out, right? Uh, we yeah. don't quite really know how this is going to shake out, but uh, we're starting to see some uh, negatives come out of this. So I don't know if you saw this recently in the news, but uh, Joe Budden, who has a, a very popular hip hop podcast, uh, last year signed an exclusive deal, much like the one with Joe Rogan, signed it with Spotify. And as they came up on the year uh, renegotiation deadline, right, he said, I'm out. I want out of this situation. Um, this is a plantation style system. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is I'm not I don't have control over my own content. And uh, the terms are are not that great when you actually look at them. And so he is. He's the first to, after the one of these major deals with a big platform provider like Spotify, to leave the platform. And he's got a whole YouTube video where he talks about why this is a bad deal, why, why platforms like Spotify are a bad deal for professional podcasters like him. Now, he's a professional podcaster, right? He's This is his career. This is his sole you know, uh, area of, of making money. But seeing that shows some, uh, there's some pushback happening. And I don't know how how Spotify will respond to this, but it is interesting, for example, now that Joe Rogan is exclusively on Spotify, some of Joe Rogan's prior episodes uh, with some rather incendiary characters, and he interviews a lot of people, like uh, a, a lot of right-wing commentators. Yeah, a lot of 
white nationalist. So not a white nationalist. A lot of you know their episodes were conspicuously absent from the Spotify directory. Right? Yeah, I would like the fan Molyneux, and uh, I think he did he interview Richard Spencer. Uh, yeah, and Milo Yiannopoulos. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah, folks like that. Yeah, so. Uh, those are, if you look at the Joe Rogan show, those are missing right now in the directory on Spotify. And some would say that's that's a very, as I said, that's a very powerful feature of platforms. They can, um, they appear to have all this kind of content, but they can editorialize content. They can remove content, things like that. Um, and that's the, you, you can be deplatformed. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're deplatformed on YouTube, that's a very significant uh, hit to an individual video producer. If you're deplatformed from something like Spotify, because of RSS as this backbone of the industry and of the medium, it's probably less. Uh, it's it's no doubt a big hit, right? And don't get me wrong, uh, Alex Jones lost a lot, you know, lost a sizable audience, but he was still able to continue to produce and distribute his content to the people who really wanted to listen to it because of um, how RSS, because RSS is an open standard that no one controls. So, uh, but that is open standards that no one controls are anathema to platforms. That's anathema to their business model. It's anathema to their way of looking at the world, right? If we had an open, open standard Facebook, that would be a direct threat to Facebook's business model. So the size of these platforms and their ability to command our attention means doesn't necessarily mean that they're nefarious, but uh, they could have some negative consequences in the future if uh, we're not really careful about how these platforms are really managing our information environment. John Sullivan from Mullenberg College, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you so much, Joe and Ryan. It's been a real pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you very much.